All right. Arun's showing me some EKGs here, but uh, we're actually here to talk about some DKA today, continuing our board series. I was told that uh, I'm not really bringing the dad jokes, so I would start, thought, thought I would start off by telling, actually telling you guys, I used to be a DJ. I was DJ insulin, because I, <laughs> I would find glucose and break it down. <laughs> anyway. I had to unmute myself so you could hear my sigh. <laughs> that's what i'm here for cringing, cringing pretty hard here cringing pretty hard yeah i know i know guys listen i've reached a real serious milestone in dad jokes my older daughter has actually groaned at my jokes, so i've i have finally arrived <laughs> um all right so uh, dka is another topic uh, which we see a lot uh, on the inpatient side um but it is something identified on our in training that we could use improvement on as a group so that being said, again, let's focus more on like the evaluation and the management. So I guess the first question is, um, you know, what are kind of like, there's not a lot, there's nothing specific, but are there any kind of signs and symptoms of a patient who's presenting with a DKA or HHS-like picture? So these patients, you know, regardless of how they might present, you know, they could come in, you know, really volume down, volume depleted, you know, altered mental status. Abdominal pain seems to be one of the main symptoms that we might see with these patients, especially in DKA. Um, actually, uh, reviewing some studies prior to this uh, series, uh, I noticed that you'd see abdominal pain way more in DKA, up to about 80% of patients in DKA can come with abdominal pain. And even sometimes that could be um, associated with the severity of the metabolic acidosis that they might have. Um, HHS, not as much um, abdominal pain in those patients. And, you know, the abdominal pain could be due to, you know, some electrolyte derangements causing some ileus or gastric motility. Um, also, these patients might come in, you know, with a fruity odor, which is because of the excessive hypoglycemia that they have um, and the way that it's being broken down. Um, so these patients will come in with a series of presentation. But, you know, when you see patients coming in that way and they have a history of diabetes, that's one of the things you want to think about since they could be in the UK. You know, I, I've said this for a while, but if you want to be a good clinician, you really need to smell your patients. <laughs> Sometimes you might have to taste them too to be a really good ID specialist. Exactly. ID, endocrine, you can really taste your patients. You do a sniff all right, let's move on before we all get in trouble here. Um, so what are some known triggers for uh, DKA? So some of the triggers, um, you know, you can, you can think about it like in the rule of eyes, I guess. Um, you know, infection is a, is a pretty big one. It, it, uh, I think it almost constitutes about like 30 to 40% of the cases of um, you know, patients' preci uh, precipitants for DKA. Um, you know, uh, initial presentations of diabetes uh, usually takes about 20%. Um, patients who are maybe non-adherent to their, their medications, uh, especially insulin uh, in patients who are type one diabetics, um, that's another one. And then, you know, you have uh, other types of uh, triggers could be, you know, in, uh, other, other inflammations, for example, like pancreatitis, um, or, you know, another big one is actually um, MI. So let's say like infarction. So I kind of go by this whole rule of I thing. So infarction, ischemia, which could include like, you know, MIs or, you know, uh, strokes can be a precipitant for DKA. Um, intoxications, especially, uh, you know, alcohol intoxication, drug in intoxication, but especially cocaine. Um, and then you have, um, you know, your, your idiopathic or your iatrogenics. And um, another big one would be uh, slash drugs uh, or medications would be your SGLT2 inhibitors. That's another big one for, um, you know, precipitating DKA. And obviously we'll get into it, but, you know, the big, big differentiator would be the glucose levels. Um, you know, especially uh, differentiating it from a classical DKA. So these are some of your 
very common um, precipitants for DKA. Yeah. yeah. The the only other uh, drug I'd add to there is a uh, use of steroids. You know, especially like uh, the dexamethasone. Yeah. That it has a profound effect on your blood sugar, uh, and and like you said, the MI is like a classic precipitant of DKA. So I, yeah. I think it's super important when your patient presents, like it's easier to throw an insulin drip on them, but why are they presenting now? That's a super important question because you want to kind of, if you don't address that underlying issue, they can have further comorbidities and complications. So uh, nice summary, uh, Shanu. Um, so, you know, this is a common presentation of, uh, you know, let's say your patient's coming with the blood sugar 500, you know, what's like the work up here, how do we confirm that they're in a DKA HHS picture? Maybe walk us through, um, uh, you know, Arun, if you want, like some of the some of the labs we're ordering, some of the workup we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of the times it's, uh, you know, you get your basic BMP, you have your CBC, um, kind of see where where your sodium, your potassium, electrolytes are at. Um, you know, sometimes the CBC, you can see their leukocytosis. If there's any, you know, left shift kind of worrying you about an infectious etiology. Um, a lot of times you get a troponin also, like uh, Shinu had mentioned, uh, possible MI or ischemia being uh, a trigger for these patients. Um, you know, in addition to that, chest X-ray, um, uh, a UA as well. Um, I also failed to mention, uh, you know, serum osmolarity uh, in these patients, uh, you know, help you kind of uh, make your diagnosis as well. Um, and then from there, you know, chest X-ray, UA, uh, EKG, um, just uh, mm -hmm. some of the basic uh, initial workup with these patients. Yeah, the, the very first thing, honestly, the absolute first thing I'm checking is a, a urine dipstick. It's the fastest thing you can get, and it will show you ketones. And that tells you you should start to be kind of uh, alarmed already. Uh, but absolutely, you're getting a chemistry to see if there's a really low bicarb. You want to, you know, an AccuCheck is great, but there's a very large margin of error. So you're getting an actual chemistry to see what the, the sugar is with uh, more certainty. You want to look at the anion gap and you want to look at the bicarb. You know, think about the word DKA. You need diabetes, you need ketones, and you need acid. So that's the way I think about it. I need the urine dipstick showing ketones. You can check serum ketones as well. You need ABG ideally, because these patients are going to go to the unit anyway, uh, to really have a good idea of how acidotic they are. And then you want to see that bicarb kind of drop. Also, I will tell you, ketones was the name of my former band. <laughs> So, so you were DJ uh, insulin <laughs> in the ketones. Listen, I'm, uh, I'm a man of many talents. Um, um, so, so tell me, you know, in terms of maybe like lab presentation and maybe even some of the presentation, one important thing to distinguish, like now that we're in the lab and workup portion, DKA versus HHS. I think this is a fair question for a board's exam. And I think this is the important thing to know clinically, kind of what's the difference. So, uh, it, it, you know, if you want to walk us through kind of like what are some of the differences between them? Yes, of course. Um, so in DKA, you know, you might have your patient present, you know, they might be hypoosmolar, but they could also be hypoosmolar as well, depending on how high their sugars are. Um, but the main thing you find that is the ketonuria or, you know, the, the ketonemia that they have, as opposed to HHS, where they typically have a lot higher um, serum osmolality, as high as, you know, the 330s, even or even 350s. Um, and they typically don't have, you know, the ketonuria or the ketonemia that the DKA patients technically have. Usually, you might also see a lot higher sugars in those patients and patients with HHS. Um, I guess the way we always learned it in med school that always stuck with me is uh, I tend to expect more um, DKA in the type 1 diabetics because of like, you know, the insulin deficiency that they have, as opposed to in type 2 diabetics might 
as the elderly patients as well might come in with more HHS like picture with the really high sugars because of they might have some insulin, but they really don't know what to do with it because of those really high sugars that they have. Right. Um, so definitely age uh, and type one versus type two at presentation. Uh, and you mentioned this, the sugar is much higher with the HHS. The only other thing I will say in terms of like presenting symptoms is your HHS patient, since they are a little more hyperosmolar, they're older, they're also more likely to present with some altered mental status. I've even, you know, anecdotally seen a patient who looked like he was having a stroke. And once we got the sugar below, I don't know, a thousand, um, his focal neuro deficits improved. Um, I won't reveal what hospital that was at. Um, I didn't even know the machines measure them that high. <laughs> oh. I thought I thought you were going to go, did they have glucometers back when I was a med student. That's right. <laughs> well, given the fact that they didn't have good band names at that time. <laughs> oh man, savage. Um, all right. So that's kind of the presenting differences. Um, you know, the, the DKA patients also, I will say, usually have more profound acidosis. Their bicarbs will be like single digits, whereas your HHS patients can kind of hang around in like the 16, 18 range. Um, so DK is definitely a more profound um, kind of presentation. Um, so with that being said, um, you know, man the management of this, <clears throat> I always tell people find an algorithm you like and print it because it's very kind of like a recipe kind of cookbook uh, management. But there are definitely some important kind of caveats and important things to watch for. So um, Shanu, do you want to walk us through kind of what you look for in terms of management, you know, what to do, like, you? I know you're watching the sodium, the potassium, some of your electrolytes, so give us some pearls. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when it comes to management, you obviously, the first thing you want to do is prioritize uh, what we call your ABCs, right? Um, and that includes your volume status. So volume is like the biggest thing, um, especially in DKA patients, they, they're severely dehydrated. And that's especially because of the fact that they're, they're peeing out a lot of glucose. So when you're peeing out a lot of glucose, you're losing a lot of volume along with it. So the main, you know, thing and uh, the main modality over here is to replete their their volume. Um, and sometimes we kind of fall in the rabbit hole if if their sodium is way too high, maybe we should like hold off on like NS or LR. But that's that's not the case. You want to you know fill up their volume as much as possible. And then once they're you know sufficiently volume repleted, that's when you start thinking about you know appropriate um, maintenance fluids uh, according to their sodium. So you know first thing is volume repletion. Um, you know, the next thing is obviously you want to look into like their electrolytes. So let's say, um, or I'm sorry, before even electrolytes, you want to start their in insulin drip. So typically, you know, we do, uh, you know, a 10 unit bolus and then we start them on an insulin drip. Um, the major thing that you want to also keep an eye out for is their potassium levels when you're starting an insulin drip, because even if, you know, you see somebody who is, um, let's say even hyperkalemic, what's going to happen is that they're actually, their total body potassium is actually depleted um, overall. Um, even if the concentration of the potassium is high. So we usually have the cutoff of, uh, you know, if it's 3.3 to 5.3, you typically want to replete their potassium along with the insulin, because as we can remember from, you know, farm from our med school, insulin actually helps in pushing your potassium intracellularly. So, you know, you always want to, you know, make sure that they're not, uh, they're, you know, sufficiently potassium repleted. Um, if they're above 5.3, you can hold off on potassium. If they're obviously below the 3.3 mark, you replete them first sufficiently, check their BMP again, and then, you know, be safe to start that insulin drip. Um, so next thing um, you want to take a look at is obviously their, their maintenance fluids. So typically it depends on um, what their sodium is. And, uh, you know, especially when it comes to hyperglycemia, you want to make sure you correct their sodium um, and have an actual sodium value uh, before you... Um, 
come up with a with a plan of of their fluid. So, you know, typically if if um, if their sodium is is very high, you can you know start with a half NS um, drip and you know continue with that. Um, if their sodium is low um, or they're hyponatremic, you can actually continue with just a normal saline um, drip. And then um, basically then you start titrating your insulin drip, um, depending on whatever protocol is being followed in your hospital. But, you know, typically um, we, we start titrating it depending on the blood glucose levels. And, um, you know, usually we start, um, you know, decreasing the drip by 25% usually if the blood glucose dips below 150 um, and then that's when we start adding a D5, um, D5 along with whatever maintenance fluids you're doing so that you don't completely tank their, their blood sugar levels as well. So that, um, that, yeah, Shanu, that's an excellent point. And that's absolutely something I've seen on, a, a, I think like a step three or something years ago is right. what to do if you're, if you still have a gap and your uh, if you still have a gap, but the sugar is okay. So you make right. an excellent point, just toss in some some sugar, you need to give kind of substrate for the insulin to break down and get out of the ketosis before you turn Absolutely. off the insulin drip. Absolutely. And you know, the next thing obviously that comes in um, after this is when do you want to transition these patients to a sub Q, uh, sub -Q insulin? Um, and that's typically, you know, when you see your blood glucose less than 200, but it also, you also have to have the patient either able to eat and um, either two of the following. It's usually if you have your, um, your anion gap below 12, or a bicarb over 15 or like 15 and above or your pH above 7.3. So if you have all these criteria that are matched, um, that's when you can, you know, start to transition your patients from the drip to a, to a subcutaneous regimen. And by the way, you always want to overlap your patients by about mm -hmm. like one to two hours typically um, because it takes some time for the, for the, insulin, uh, the long acting insulin to kick in. Um, so that's type of that's kind of the basics, the 101 of a DKA management. Um, this is something that you will definitely, you know, we'll all we all see in a pretty regular fashion. Um, DKA is pretty common, especially in the critical care unit as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the management is pretty cookbook, but it is important to know some of those nuances. You know, like it's terrifying to supplement potassium when it's on the higher side, but you should know to anticipate that it's dropping. Um, yeah. So excellent summary, Shanu. Um, uh, I, I think this is an important topic. Uh, you'll definitely see it again, like probably weekly uh, on the wards. And it's definitely fair game for test.